a legend in his own mind. That's the biggest rock star entrance I've ever had. You know, like the guy's... You know, it, like, like the height of ego, right? The, the height of rock stardom is make the people wait. So we're off on the side, hooking up all the electronics that's oh so necessary for stardom, right? Anyway, that was a great... I'm, I'm going to try that more often. That was the ego boost I really needed from church. Hey, before we jump into the teaching, um, before we jump into the teaching, Abigail just got back from a missions trip to... Uh, Mexico. So, Abby, we're going to do an impromptu interview. I'm going to prompt you, and you're going to speak. Okay. Go ahead, Abby. Um, well, I had a great time. Thanks for praying for me while I was in Mexico, and some great stuff happened. I mean, I built a lot of relationships with the people there, and I didn't want to leave, but um, it was awesome. And I'm going on another trip in November to India. And you all should come. It's going to be awesome. Okay, what's the best thing that happened down there? Best memory to take away? Probably. Oh, we. So when we go on a trip with the E3, you try and find a person of peace. And then that person of peace, you start um, almost like a home church there. And it was, um, it was just really touching when we found that person of peace and she wanted to just reach out to all of her friends and neighbors. So. You're, it's like very organic. You're starting small, mm-hmm. just one or two people, yeah. impact their lives. That begins to build. And before you know it, you have a little house church. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Did you do any teaching? Um, I, I did. I... Was it as good as me? <laughs> you know the right answer to this. You just know, remember. I'm not going to answer that. Okay, don't. <laughs> Probably better. Probably Okay, anything else you want to tell us before you go? Hmm. Oh, there was about five. Five um, uh, and second groups were started, which is like a church, a home church. So This isn't, this isn't how long? One week. Yeah. And how many people were I don't think thousands, but... <laughs> About, I know 25 are from believers now. Abby, that's... Okay, so guys, obviously, that's huge bang for the buck, right? You go away for a week just south of the border, and there's five churches, little house churches started, and 25 people are going to see the Lord in heaven. That's pretty cool. Okay, so, Stephanie... If anyone else wants to get involved, should they talk to you? <laughs> Stephanie Demink, the girl who's showing too much enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, that's Stephanie. She understates everything. Okay, so if you want to get involved and have that kind of uh, mission experience and see God move like that, then you talk to her or you talk to her. Okay, thanks, Abby. That was wonderful. Okay, so this is uh, part three. No, actually, this is part 18 in the Life of Jesus series that we have been doing. And, um, but it's part three in the little three weeks that uh, I'm teaching while John is on vacation. So this is the third. And since you weren't here last week, let me explain to you what this is about. First of all, very quickly, Jesus acts before he speaks. We tend to speak first and maybe we'll act later. So a lot of the times our faith is about words, but his faith, what he was coming to bring was all about action. So he had done all these amazing, powerful things for people before he even said one word. And finally, after doing all these miracles and helping people in these cool ways, he starts his message. Now, here we'd, we'd, we'd start something uh, if you're going to start your message, you start with something non-confrontational. You start with something that makes people feel good. Maybe you tell a few jokes. You soften them up. Jesus starts with his soft material. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. 
It, it's just, guys, it's not a user-friendly interface, right? He just comes right out and he just lays it on the line. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. And last week we said, okay, there's two questions that arise from his opening words. One is, what's the kingdom of God anyway? Because his life was all about the kingdom of God. And in a nutshell, the kingdom of God starts with a spiritual reality which surrounds all of us all the time. Whether you believe in him or not, he is present around you. He is in this world, waiting to interact with this world. And when you enter into his kingdom, a spiritual change happens and you begin to comprehend things that were impossible for you to comprehend before. You begin to see life through a spiritual lens. You begin to see life through his perspective, through his sight. You begin to value the things he values. You begin to actually, once you enter into his world, he enters into yours and his essence, his spirit, comes to live inside of you. And you find, strangely, and this is really amazing, you find you're thinking his thoughts. You're actually having thoughts rising up in your mind, the origin of which is not you, it's God. And slowly over a lifetime of relationship with him, his thoughts and your thoughts become so intertwined in one another that the day comes when you can't tell the difference. Isn't that cool? Remember when you were first a Christian, his, his thoughts were so clear to you because they were so different than you? Remember how easy it was to tell what he was saying and how he was guiding you in the early days? And then you hear people complain and they say, well, it's not like that for me anymore. I don't hear him as clearly as I used to hear him. Part of the reason is he's become so much a part of you that you don't recognize what's going on half the time. His world begins to permeate. His presence begins to permeate your whole life. And gradually... That leads to a transformation where you start to become more and more like what he designed you to be before mistakes and bad things happened in your life and distorted. You see, all of us, all of us, no matter how holy we are, we are living a distortion of the design. I am not today the person I was designed to be. There's been too much pain and too much corruption, too many disappointments. And I live in a lesser state of expectation than what I was designed to live in. We all do. But over time, he lifts off the rust and he gently flushes away the calcium deposits. And he cleans the inside of you. To where all those things that were marring the image and the beauty of his design... You're slowly lifted off. Every day you know him, you're becoming more yourself. Isn't that just, oh, God, thank you. There's this crazy, I, I hear these statements, our Christians are all the same. They're just a bunch of little clones. They just all look the same. No one who's been around us could say that. There's crazy people in this room. <laughs> Their uniqueness sometimes is threatening. Right? It's not a bunch of clones. I wish they were. They would be easier to lead. <laughs> leading Christians, herding cats. Leading Christians, herding cats. What's the difference? You have a whole room full of stunningly interesting creations. You're not becoming more like somebody else. You're not becoming more like some little model perfect person. You're becoming more like you. The longer you're with them, the more that transformation is taking place. That's what it is to enter into the kingdom of God. And it has physical repercussions, which Gary was talking about. First, it has spiritual repercussions. We now have a spiritual authority we didn't have before. We can command evil to leave a room. We can command evil to leave a person's life, and it will go. My, my first example of the power of God was a friend of mine with a 16-year drug addiction, and he had tried everything to get free. And nothing worked. And one night I took him to a meeting where the Spirit of God was really moving. 
and something was driven out of him. He felt it go. I felt it go. And he was set free, and he never did that, that drug again. Amen. Just like that. So we get a new authority in spiritual things. And that spiritual reality, that kingdom of God that hovers around us spiritually all the time, it has the ability to impinge upon physical reality. We, with spiritual authority speaking in God's name, can see sick people healed. So the kingdom has even physical repercussions, not just emotional, not just spiritual, not just relational. It begins to affect all of life. Isn't that just flat out the coolest thing? And the second question Jesus' opening remarks raises, after the kingdom of God is near and it's available to you and you get to enter it if you want to, he gives us the way you enter it. You enter it through repentance. And that's the bad news. Nobody wants to repent of anything. Human nature, when caught, is to cover up and hide and run away. God's solution is to be honest and be real. Come to him with your failure and with your problems, and in his love, he is going to forgive you and welcome you into his world. But you can't enter the world of a perfect God without dealing with your rebellion. Do you understand? He's the king. He's not a benevolent, nice grandfather in the sky who's kind of senile and keeps giving you gifts even though you spend the money on heroin. He's not like that. He cares too much about you to leave you the way you are. Because his vision of you is so good because he designed you. He insists on change. But the beautiful thing is he's easy to please and hard to satisfy. The littlest movement on your behalf towards him causes him great joy. But he's too kind to leave you the way you are. So it takes repentance. You have to face, I have a problem. My name's Mark. I'm a selfaholic. I need a power greater than my selfishness in my life to set me free so I can be the person I long to be. You're supposed to say, hi, Mark. Let's try it again. Hi, my name is Mark. I have a problem. I'm a selfaholic. I need a power greater than my selfishness to set me free from my selfishness. (laughs) We are born, we are born, guys. Our default position at birth is self. And in life with God, you can't be about yourself. It won't work unless you're about him. So you need a power greater than your selfishness, your narcissistic birth state, to set you free so that you can be everything he designed you to be. And repentance is the way in. But it isn't just the way in, it's also the way on. Because the day you come to him, he doesn't just make you perfect just like that, and everything's fine. It's a, it's a, it's a marinating, osmotic situation. Over time, he changes you. So as you see things that need to change, you tell them, Lord, I just saw something else that needs to change. Would you please help me with this? And he loves to hear those words. He always responds to those words. He never fails to respond to, God, I've seen something I don't like. Can you help me to change it? And then he'll begin to do that. So we covered that last week. This is all just by way of um, summary. Life of Jesus, part 18, the place of repentance in the Christian life. Normally we repent this way. I am sorry for the bad things that I've done. But at a deeper level, we should be saying, I'm sorry for the bad thing that I am. And that is rebellious, self-willed, and self-centered. See, it's a matter of seeing ourselves for what we are, rebellious and independent from God. And I want to make this point because when we talk about how good repentance is, how repentance reconnects us with God's love and his perspective, lifts off the damage and the brokenness inside, it's such a good thing, we can be tempted to think it's something we do for ourselves. So we go hunting for our sin. Have you ever gone hunting for your sin? 
When I first became a Christian, there were just a million things wrong with me. I was a really horrible person. And uh, the Lord began to let me see the terrible way I treated people, how manipulative I was and controlling and completely selfish. And I saw all these bad habits and, and um, everything that needed to change. And I wanted it to happen all at once. God, you know, change me because I don't like what I'm seeing. See, once he shows you, once he comes into your life, you begin to see things as he sees them. You begin to see yourself as you really are. And it is not a pretty picture. And, uh, and I, I saw all these things that were wrong. And, and I, I prayed and I said, God, you have to help me. I, I want to change. I don't like what I'm seeing in myself. I want to be a better person. Um, what do you want to start with? And I thought he would start with horrible, difficult things. And he spoke to me very clearly and he said, from now on, don't always take the last piece of pizza. That's what he said. I said, what? This hey, you're supposed to be telling me that I'm worthless and rotten and you're supposed to be cleaning up my language and you're supposed to be cleaning up how I treat people and you're supposed to be doing this and that. What's with the Pizza. And Lord says, will you always take the last piece of pizza? I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> he goes, well, st- stop doing that. And I thought, okay, this is the road to holiness. This is the route to me becoming a better person. And the Lord said, that's just what I want you to do. So I started not taking the last piece of pizza on the plate. It was the hardest thing I ever did. <laughs> it was horrible. And then, then it did cost me something. My first marriage was not in good shape. And uh, I said, God, I want to be... Oh, this is horrible, guys. Hold on to your seats. Grip something with me because it's about to get really ugly. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do about my marriage? And he said, now, guys, he'll never say this to you. Never. So fret not. He said, stop watching Monday Night Football. Okay, <laughs> I, said, I said, I'll make a deal with you. I will stop watching Monday Night Football if I can have the last piece of pizza. <laughs> I didn't say that. But seriously, he said, you know, you don't have time for your wife and you're not showing her that you honor her and that she's important to you. This would be a huge sacrifice you could give to her if you gave that up and gave the time to her. And I thought, I thought it was going to kill me. I really did. I, it, was, it was awful. But, but I did it. And uh, didn't help at all. <laughs> but it helped me. Didn't help the marriage very much. Um, but it really helped me. Really did. So he starts with sometimes things we don't expect him to start with. But he always knows best how to grow us, and how to help us to change. It's dangerous to habitually go hunting for your own sin. You can trust him to tell you what's wrong. If with an open heart you say to him, Lord, I want to grow, I want to be more like you designed me to be, would you please show me what needs to change? He never fails to answer that prayer, ever. He will always show you something. It usually won't be what you expect. It might be like the pizza. But the trouble with going hunting for your own sin is that, first of all, you don't see yourself as you really are. You'll probably misjudge and end up accusing yourselves of things that God never wanted to accuse you of. Or you'll want to start with something horrendous rather than maybe the first piece of pizza. But here's the worst of it. When you go hunting to dig up your sin, there's a helper involved. And he in the Bible is called the accuser of the brethren. It's the enemy. It's the devil. It's Satan or one of his minions. And as soon as you say, oh, I want to go hunting for my own sin, he says, here, let me help you. 
And then he begins listing all the things that you've done wrong. And it's a big, nasty list, and it goes on and on. And pretty soon you realize, I can't change any of these things. And every minute, a few more of your failures are added to this list. And pretty soon, you fall into despair, or you just quit, or you end up hating yourself. His job is to accuse you of your sins. God's job is to forgive you for your sins. Don't go hunting. Just ask the Lord to reveal things, and he always will. See, when the devil accuses us of sin, it's in order to instill self-hate in us. It is in order to discourage us so much that we'll give up wanting to be holy. It will drive us away from our loving Heavenly Father and from our brothers and sisters. That's the devil's agenda when he shows you your failure. Now, does that mean that uh, we never see our failure? Yeah, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our failures when we need to hear it so we can change. Do you understand? There's a difference. When Satan reveals your sin to you and, and writes it all down and holds it in front of your face, it's condemnation. It's for the purpose of discouraging you and breaking you and causing you to feel hopeless. Like, oh, this change is too vast. I could never do that. I ought to just give up. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of a sin, it's always something specific that you can do something about. When the devil condemns you, it's usually something vague like, well, you're just a rotten person. Well, you're always this or you're always that. It's usually not something you could do much about. It's more just something about your character. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, it's always something specific that you can actually repent of and even go and make recompense or restoration for or ask forgiveness for. When, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, he never leaves you hopeless. He, it's interesting. Even though he shows you something wrong about you, the result of him showing it to you, because there's so much love involved in the process, is that even though you just face something ugly about yourself, you feel better for it afterwards. You're even thankful for it. You're not hopeless. You're not discouraged. You're not thinking there's nothing I can do. Because his motivation is completely different. He's out to help you. The devil's out to destroy you. The conviction of the Holy Spirit leaves us thankful for his love and amazed at the depth of his forgiveness. God will never show you your sins without cuddling with you afterwards. I really mean that. A good parent shows the toddler his failure, but a good parent picks the baby up right afterwards and smothers him with love. Our Heavenly Father will never show you your sin without smothering you with love. And that's one way to tell the difference right there. You know, you want to know how much the Lord loves you? Not theoretically, but actually in your life? Do you want to know how much he loves you? Then just think about how bad you are. And put an equal sign after it. This is how much he has forgiven me. Another equal sign. This is how much he loves me. The understanding of your own failure is the root to understanding the depth of his love because even this he has forgiven and let go of. Isn't that wonderful? It leaves you more thankful, more loved, more encouraged. I mean, it's, a, it's a crazy, crazy dichotomy. How can you see the depth of your own brokenness and at the same time feel wonderful about it? Because the person who's showing it to you has only one motivation, to free you from it and to love you through that process. Discouragement comes when you take out the equal sign. Discouragement comes when you see your own brokenness, but you don't equate it with the depth of his forgiveness or love. And that is discouraging. But he will never convict you of something he doesn't love you for afterwards. 
for the forgiveness that took place, for for the fact that you ran back to him with your failure, that you reached out to him to be loved. Here's another difference. The Holy Spirit leaves you hating sin and wanting to be better. But he gives you a promise to help you live free from this destructive behavior. And this brings real hope. And when the devil condemns you, there's no hope. It just leaves you jaded or lethargic about your failures and no hope for change. I already said this, but I want to say it again. When the devil convicts, he doesn't convict, he condemns. He he accuses you of some general sinfulness without being specific about what you should change. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, will show you specific things that are wrong and call you to specific changes, which he promises to empower you to make. The Holy Spirit never makes general or vague accusations that can leave you in doubt of his love. He always leaves you with something you can do and a hope that he's with you in that process. So don't go digging for your sin in order to repent. So we're left with this. Ask to see what we should repent of and then wait for God to reveal it to you. And you have to trust him that he will. But he will. Because he's a good father. Now some of us are thinking, well, you know, I've done that but um, I'm not hearing anything, and yet there's still problems in my life, and I still know that there's destructive behaviors, and I can see the effect of it in my relationships, and I don't feel right. Something's wrong. God hasn't shown me. What's wrong with me? The reason, here's a good reason, that we're not more familiar with his answer to the prayer, show me what's wrong with me, is because of the way he usually chooses to do it. Usually chooses to do it. Now, bad news. How does he usually choose to do it? Through people. (laughs) You know, guys, I've had uh, dreams and visions, um, and I've told you a few of them over the last while, but I've had dreams and visions convicting me of my sin where they were unmistakably God. Without question, he was revealing things to me. And in those times, it's always easy to repent. Right? The neon writing on the wall, Mark, you're a gluttonous pig. Gosh, I wonder where that came from. You always take the last piece of pizza. Oh, I wonder where that came from. It's easy to repent when God directly tells you, and yes, he will, but most of the time, the way you become conscious of what's wrong with you is through the people around you. And nobody likes hearing about what's wrong with them from someone they think is worse than they are. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest for a minute. We're all walking around with massive little egos inside saying, well, I'm generally better than the people around me. I mean, I know that Mother Teresa existed. She's historical, so there's one person better than me. But when I look around, mostly everybody else is in some state of disrepair worse than I am. So really, I don't feel too bad about myself. So along comes one of those worser people and picks the moment to tell you what's wrong with you. And you think, are you kidding me? Look at your life. You're a mess. You're way worse than me. I told you about the friend of my, the band I played at in Canada. We were driving down the road and And, yeah, he had a bunch of problems in his life, and I chose to tell him about them. Honestly, I did feel like I should because I loved him. He had some serious problems that were messing up his marriage. And we're driving down the road. He's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. And I said, Rob, I want to talk to you about some things I've been seeing in your life. And he goes, what do you mean? As soon as you say some things I've seen in your life, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, there's, there's this and this and this. And he got really, got really mad. And he said, what gives you the right to talk to me about what's wrong with my life? He says, there's lots of things that are wrong with, 
with your life too. He says, what right do you have to talk to me about my life? And it must have been the Lord because this phrase popped into my mind and I just turned him and said, Rob, because it's your turn. (laughs) And he looked at me and I said, Rob, it's your turn. In a minute when I'm done, we'll do me. I meant it. Like, believe me, I'm not going to correct him without taking some myself. That's not right. It isn't. Look at the log in your own eye before you go and correct the little speck of sawdust in somebody else's. If you're going to dish it out, you have to take it. And I meant it. And that just stopped him dead. It's your turn, Rob. And he goes, okay, what is it? And we had a great talk, and we were done. I said, okay, now it's your turn. What do you want to say to me? And he goes, not now. (laughs) And off we drive. He had his chance later, though. God uses other people, and there's nothing harder than hearing some equally sinful person tell you what's wrong with you. But this is how he usually brings the painful truth. So here's the question. Why does he do that? Why does God leave something as fragile and awkward and fraught with potential failure as using other people to bring correction to us. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. Why does he do that? Guys, when he invites us into his kingdom, he wants to share the responsibilities of bringing the kingdom with us. We're not robots. We're not little minions that get no role to play he dignifies us with having a role to play we're partners in advancing the kingdom so he gives us huge responsibility and he allows us to speak on his behalf not just words of love to the people we love but words of correction too it is a measure of the dignity he has given us that we get to partner with him in the administration and the coming of his kingdom on earth. So yeah, we get to do fun things. We get to do things like, I love you so much, you make me so happy. And being in this church with someone like you is a great joy for me. And I really mean that. We were talking with, um, Shelly and Jan and I were talking about our church last night. And I said, you know, there's a couple jerks in there. But, and I won't tell you who you are. But, um, but I said, these people are wonderful to spend life with. I can't think of people I love more. They're just fantastic people to be with. It's great to get to encourage one another. And we do that a lot. And I hope we just never stop. Because for every one negative word, you need a hundred encouraging words. So we should be people that are full of encouraging words before we bring words of correction. But sometimes you just have to bring a word of correction. Because it's on your heart and you know it. He gives us a role to play in making his kingdom work on earth. James says this, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. The reason James says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed is because the job of calling one another to recognize our sin was given to the church. It's a role we play. Romans tells us we're to correct and admonish one another. And he expects us to listen even when what is being said is mixed up with another person's poor delivery, negative emotions, and everything else. So listen to me now. This is really important. This is what it is to be truly repentant. It is cultivating a humility that takes correction from another who is just as bad or worse than you. That's as deep as humility can go. That's having a repentant spirit. And God loves that. You see, repentance at that kind of deep level is what got you into the kingdom of God, but it's what gets you on in the kingdom of God as well. It's not a one-time thing. Repentance is spiritual breathing. It's not just an act of repentance that makes you a Christian. It is a lifestyle of ongoing repentance and openness to correction. It's really humility. It's letting your pride take a hit for the sake of growing. Asking for forgiveness and extending forgiveness is the most important aspect of loving one another. Forgiveness is the coin of the realm. 
And being open to correction is vital. It's essential to your ongoing joy, and it's, ex- it's essential to the joy in your church. Now let me read you a passage from the Bible, which is true repentance in the life of a man who was corrected by another man. Let's put it up there, Psalm 51. Now you know the story. Do you know the story? David, King David, has conquered all of these kingdoms. Things are going quite well. He doesn't need to be out in the battlefield now. He's in Jerusalem. He's got everything nailed down. Things are going really well. And he's bored because he stopped fighting and he sent out his warriors to do it. And he's just sitting around one day and he goes out in his rooftop to think. And he looks down and sees a beautiful woman a couple of buildings away, maybe hanging laundry on her roof. And he thinks, she's hot. And he thinks, I will have her. And he's the king. He can do anything he wants. So he takes her against her wishes. And he impregnates her against her wishes. And she is the wife of his best friend, his number one guy number one commander of his army. So then he realizes, oh my God, what have I done? Now rather than repent of it, which would have ended the problem, I mean there's still a problem, but repentance would have ended the relational problem. He decides, he he does the human thing, I will hide this and cover up. So he calls her husband back and he says, you know, you've been working really hard out there. You've been, you've been making war, and it's been really rough on you. You know, you deserve a reward. Your wife is smoking hot. You should come back and spend a few nights and, you know, have sex with her. You, you've earned it. And the guy has so much integrity and so much honor. He says, I could never do that when my men are out in the field dying. I can't do that when they can't. That's leadership, folks. I, I can't do that. And David's like, oh, my God. What am I going to do? I've got to cover this up. thinks, okay, get him really drunk. Get him really, really drunk. That'll loosen his control. And then I'll send him home to his wife. He'll sleep with her, and then the baby will look like it's his. Well, that'll work. So he gets him rip-roaring drunk and says, go, go home now. Go sleep with your wife. And he says, I could never do that when my men are sleeping in the fields. And he sleeps on the door. He sleeps in front of the door in the street of David's palace and David realizes this isn't going to work so he sets it up tells one of the other commanders the next big battle as soon as possible get him into it put him at the front line and then everybody else withdraw and just leave him and he does that and he's killed and now he thinks he's pulled it off gotten rid of the problem This is a guy that God says is a man after my own heart. The apple of my eye. This is what he did. And he thinks he's scot-free. And then God sends a prophet, Nathan, and Nathan comes to the king, and boy, that takes courage. And he tells him this little story. It's an allegory about a man that stole another man's sheep and left him with nothing. And this makes the king really mad. And Nathan says, what would you do with a guy like that? And David says, you know, I'd do this and this and this. And Nathan points the finger and says, that is you. This is what you did to his wife. This is how you got him killed. The man you're saying deserves punishment is you. And David completely falls apart with a repentant spirit. And this is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. Now listen, according to your unfailing love. Isn't that interesting? See, he knows what he's done is wrong, but he knows God is merciful. He knows God is forgiving. And he's calling on him for that. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Lift them off of me. Make it as if it never happened. Clean me up and make me innocent. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. The more you go on with God, the more you see yourself as you really are, and the more all your sins or more and more of your sins are not secrets to you anymore. You just live seeing them. Now, if you didn't have a balancing force of love and acceptance and forgiveness in your life, the knowledge of those sins would destroy you. But God is not like that. And he is quick to forgive and he's full of compassion. So even though you might see yourself as you truly are, maybe for the first time in your life, thank God at the same time, he doesn't just reveal your sin to you, he reveals his love and the depth of his forgiveness. David says, against you only you have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. Now here's an interesting phrase. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, this is what I'm trying to say. In other words, he sees that the problem is not just what he has done, but who he is. He has a rebellious nature. He has a selfish nature. This is our human default position. This is ultimately what we repent of. Not simply things we've done wrong, but the tendency to do them. The real problem in our life is not the things that we do wrong. It's the tendency to do them. Do you understand? Sin is not a behavioral problem. It's a relational problem. It is that we do not relate to God in a way that so connects us with his love that we find ourselves not wanting to sin. Real change comes at the core level when you begin relating to him in a new way. Repentance is how that starts, but it goes on and on and on. I was sinful at birth. I've been sinful from the time I was conceived. I have a rebellious nature. Surely you desire truth, in this inside, in the inner parts, at the depth of my being, you want truth. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop. It was a ritual cleaning. And I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. When you know, folk, listen to me. When you know you have been forgiven, there is a joy and a gladness that is unmatched by any other human experience. You feel free. You feel like a weight has been lifted off of you and you can go forward innocent like a small child. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. And here's what God does. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast righteous spirit in me. God changes our heart as we repent with a new purity we've never experienced before. And he renews a steadfast spirit that desires to do good. He works at the core of our being. He does not work at the behavioral level. God is not in behavior modification. God changes the core of our being and our behavior changes because we've been changed at the core of our being. That's the good news, folks. Everything else is just sin management. But this is transformation. Don't cast me from your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And every time we repent, he restores to us the joy of our salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. And I just love this last part. The sacrifices of God. You see, in the Old Testament, they had all these sacrifices, things you had to do, ritual things. You you killed a bull. You killed a dove. You sacrificed something. You did some act. And he promised when you do this act, you're forgiven. That was just a half measure while we wait for Jesus. We seize to it. We don't have to do that anymore because he's the final sacrifice. He gave himself for us. 
We're now clean because he makes us so. We're forgiven because he died for our sins. The sacrifices that God really values aren't bulls or doves or this or that, ritual things. They're a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. And when he talks about a broken spirit, he doesn't mean someone who's discouraged. He's talking about a broken spirit being like you'd break a horse from its self-will and now it will obey and it will follow and it can be truly trained and it can be truly useful. It's like giving up on my self-domination, giving up on my selfish nature, letting that go and trusting God. That's a broken spirit. Broken in the good sense, not broken in the bad sense. Oh God, you will not despise We're done almost. Let me make two more points. It's God's design for our Christian relationships that we will rub up against each other and in the process, process, I'm a Canadian, in the process, our sin will be revealed. Let me just say it again because this is, we need to understand this about our own fellowship and our Christian relationships. It is God's design for our Christian relationships that we will rub up against each other and in the process our sin will be revealed so that it can be dealt with and we can be free and we can be what we're designed to be. Hopefully when our sin comes out, someone will call us on them and we'll face them and we'll repent. We call this accountability. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now look, this is a heavy sermon. Believe me, I know it's a heavy sermon. And it isn't a politically correct sermon. And it isn't seeker-sensitive. A non-Christian sitting in the room is probably going, what the? Please, you're kidding me. This is so depressing, I would never want to live like you people. But I'm giving you the truth as I understand it from the Bible, okay? But here's the bottom line. Guys, this is why repentance is a good thing, not a bad thing. David ends the prayer with this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The reason God confronts us with our sin, directly or through another person, is because a rebellious nature left unchecked results in distance from God and distance from others. It's poison to our relationships. And in our lives, the most important things we have are our relationships. The reason God confronts us with our sin, either directly or through another person, is because a rebellious nature left unchecked results in distance from God and distance from others. This leads to a lack of joy. And listen to me, God is in the joy business. C.S. Lewis said, the serious business of heaven is joy. Repentance actually brings joy. It's a good thing. It's a lifestyle to cultivate. Okay, close your eyes. We're going to do a little listening to God exercise. Ready? We're going to ask God a question. And then believe the Holy Spirit is going to speak to a lot of us. Father, would you please speak to our hearts and our minds right now and help us to answer this question. Why am I so afraid of repentance? Why? Am I so afraid of repentance? Lord, please show each of us, as we ask you this question sincerely, please show each of us the answer to that question. Lord, why am I so afraid of repentance? Just listen to the thought that comes into your mind. Why is it so hard for me to admit I was wrong. 
Lord, please answer that question. Why is it so hard for me to admit I was wrong? What did he say? What did he say, Ron? Okay. Rather than conviction. Pride. What else? What did he say? Pride. What else? Anybody else? Well, that's when you don't worry about it. What else? You might have to do something you're not comfortable with. The one that flitted through my mind was rejection. You know? If I admit that I'm wrong, they have grounds to reject me, and they can just turn and walk away. Close your eyes. Lord, what do you want to say right now? How do you want to encourage each one of us right now? Pray that you'd speak with a thought or an idea or a memory or a verse. What do you want to say to us? Each one of us, Lord. What did he say? What did you hear him say? How did he communicate? I love you with an unconditional love. What else? Not by might or power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. Self-effort to change isn't going to accomplish much. But when he's working inside of you, everything changes. What else? Surrender and I'll take over. You belong to me. What else? He said to me, I love it when you run to me with your failure. So encouraging. Okay, we're done. Now, if anybody wants some prayer about anything that's come out of this, because a lot of deep things are going on, and you feel like you'd like to hear more from him, uh, or you feel like you'd like some reinforcement of his spirit in helping you with your repentance, or if he's convicted you of something you want to confess and have someone pronounce forgiveness over you, which is really biblical, you come forward. So prayer team, why don't you come up? And if anyone wants prayer, you come now and we'll pray for you.